Reasonable with Mike Gerard. This is Mike Gerard. Today, I want to look at the election system in the United States, and in particular, the way in which the president is elected. Now, since the founding of the country, there have been five elections that resulted in a president who didn't win the popular vote, and two of those happened just in the last 20 years, with the previous ones being in 1824, 1876, and 1888. Now, after the 2000 election, I was on the bandwagon to dismantle the College of Electors, and then by 2016, it seemed maddening to me that the national discourse didn't result in a ratified amendment to the Constitution. But, as usual, I formed my opinions based on my passions, without an ounce of understanding or reason. So let's correct that sloppy civics and dive in. It's April 2019, and a candidate for the next presidential election has emerged. During a speech, they talk about the last election, saying, We can't say it's much of a democracy when twice in my lifetime the Electoral College has overruled the American people. Let's pick our president by counting up all the ballots and giving it to the woman or man who got the most votes. Now, I'm not going to mention who said this, because it's really not important, and I'm not trying to slam them, but it was somebody who I thought actually had a real chance of getting their party's nomination. But this quote really spoke to me. It echoed my sentiments. The College of Electors takes the voting power away from the people. Why do we have a people's government if the voice of the people doesn't count? Now, this quote is interesting on a couple different levels. First, it completely lacks an understanding of exactly the type of government that was established by the founders. And second, it makes a suggestion that would completely alter the country. So let's start with the first point. Exactly what type of government do we have? I imagine if we took a poll of the average citizen asking them, what type of government does the United States have? Most would reply, a democracy. Now, if we were to ask it as a multiple choice question, our answers might be a little more revealing. Let's say we were to give the following choices to the question. A, democracy. B, republic. C, federalist republic. D, democratic federalist republic. And if we tell the citizen on the street, you can pick none, one, some, or all, I wonder what the results would be. <laughs> Maybe I need to wait for a vaccine. Now, I find it interesting that there are many ways to refer to our government. I suppose if I were asked the question, I would say it's a federal presidential representative democratic republic. Now, that's really a mouthful. And that's why I believe most Americans wouldn't be able to quite put their finger on what type of government the United States has. But... And this is important. We know what it looks like. We know what it sounds like. And, more importantly, we know what it is not. So, let's go back to 1787 and the Constitutional Convention and see if we can figure out exactly why the system of electors came to be. Now, as with most topics during this time, our founders were embroiled in lengthy discussion. How exactly would they form this new type of government? Of course, they didn't want a monarchy, and yet most readily agreed that it shouldn't be a pure democracy either. 
that would require a direct vote for the president. Some feared, to quote John Stuart Mills, the tyranny of the majority. One of the convention delegates, Elbridge Gerry, later the fifth vice president and of gerrymandering fame, put it quite succinctly, the people are uninformed and would be misled by a few designing men. Others voice similar concerns. And, you know, I love this period in our history. What we have left are the writings and remembrances, but what I like to imagine are the side conversations that must have happened in the taverns where, over a few pints, they really spoke their minds. Let the people elect the president. Are you mad, Mr. Wilson? The unwashed masses hardly know what's best for them. And to quote again, from Elbridge Gerry, a popular election in this case is radically vicious. The ignorance of the people would put it in the power of someone set of men dispersed through the Union and acting in concert to delude them into any appointment. And let's just throw this next quote in for good measure while we're at it from Delegate George Mason. The extent of the country renders it impossible that the people can have the requisite capacity to judge of the respective pretenses of the candidates. And so, there you have it. We the people cannot be trusted. Now, in looking at the discussions and writings during this period, their thoughts on this experiment becomes clear. They feared tyranny. They feared the majority. They wanted balance. They wanted liberty. To achieve this, they had to check every delegation of power. Now, to give the democratic power to the people, direct elections would be held every two years for their member of the House of Representatives. The purpose here is to have this part of the government be as close to the people and their passions as possible. So, if the impulses of the people were to capriciously change from one year to the next, so would the members of the House. Now, this was by design. But to balance this out, there's the Senate. And the senators were to be elected by the state legislatures. Yes, the people didn't elect senators directly until 1914. The idea here was that by not being elected directly by the people and by giving them six years, the senators would be more focused and less prone to be swayed by the impassioned whims of the people. I mean, it was a way to instill continuity to balance the frequent and expected rotation of the members of the House to temper the tumultuous masses. And this is evidenced by the very manner in which the senators were to be elected in three groups every two years, so that no more than a third of the chamber changes at any one time, leaving the remaining two-thirds unchanged for stability. But when it came to the president, this is where the debate continued. As we can now imagine, support for the direct election of the president by the people didn't prevail, despite having some support. In the end, what was decided was an altogether unique and untested system. And so we come to the heart of the matter. What was to become the first section of the second article of the Constitution? In keeping with the manner in which senators were elected, the Constitution here prescribes that the state legislatures are to appoint electors who then vote for president and vice president. So not a direct election, but an election by persons appointed by each state 
in a manner of their own choosing. Now, the proposal before them was that each state would be given two electors, one for each senator, and then one for each representative that the state had in the House of Representatives. What this was intended to do was to equalize the importance of each state. Consider a more populous state like Massachusetts, with an estimated population of 377,000, to a less populous state like South Carolina, coming in around 156,000. If it was a direct election, based on the number of votes, a candidate would only have to win Massachusetts, and the people of South Carolina would be neglected by the candidate while running, and potentially, while also in office. But by assigning the electors, it levels the playing field a bit more. If a majority of electoral votes are needed, then Massachusetts's eight and South Carolina's five are much more equitable, and a candidate would do well to court both states. But then, how to arrive at the number of electors? Remember, it's based on the number of representatives each state has in the House, and this is where we have to do some real dirty work. We have to do what some states did upon hearing this proposal. We have to consider here the estimated population of the respective states at the time with a most unsavory caveat. Consider again Massachusetts and South Carolina. Massachusetts' total population was indeed around 377,000, but South Carolina was a slave state. And while the population of total free persons was 156,000, there was an estimated 249,000 slaves. Yeah, over 40% of the population were slaves. And the South Carolina delegates to the Constitutional Convention, well, they wanted representation in the House for their slaves. Not freedom, but representation. Now, after much debate, and not just about the representation apportionment, but they also touched on the very fundamental injustice that slavery was, but for their purposes at that time, a solution needed to be found to move forward. And thus, the three-fifths compromise was agreed upon, wherein each slave would be counted as three-fifths a person with regards to the total population of the slave states. And so, for South Carolina it increased their population to around 250,000, thereby earning them extra electoral votes. So this is what the founders came up with. Representatives chosen by the people, senators chosen by the states, and the president chosen by electors based on the representation in the House. But we're not done yet. The question remaining to be answered is how then did the states choose the electors? Well, the founders left that entirely up to the states to decide. So let's look at the first election in 1789. There, of course, were 13 states at the time. However, two states hadn't ratified the Constitution yet, and one state didn't select any electors, so the election was up to 10 states. Now, of those states, only six allowed a popular vote to select the electors, while the other four had their respective state legislatures choose the electors. While there were a total of 91 electoral votes at the time, with the three states not participating, there was a total of 69 in play, all of which, of course, went to George Washington. Four years later, in the election of 1792, there were now 15 states, all of which participated. There still remained six states 
that allowed a direct vote for the electors, with the remaining favoring their state legislatures doing the nominating of the electors. And in those states that allowed direct votes, it was often the electors who appeared on the ballot, which could be really confusing for a voter. I mean, you're going in to vote for Washington and you see Joe Blow's name on the ballot. Now, it wasn't until 1832, when there were 24 states, that all but one state allowed a direct vote for their electors. Oh, and that one state? South Carolina. They remained the lone holdout until they became the first state to secede from the Union in 1860. It wasn't until after the Civil War and the Reconstruction, in the election of 1872, that all citizens participated in voting for their presidential electors. Now, Colorado in 1876 used their legislature to select electors for the first and the last time, and then that ended the long experiment into the executive of the country not being voted for directly by the people. And remember, in 1876, for the first time, a candidate received a higher popular vote but lost the electoral votes, and subsequently, we didn't have a President Tilden. So, at this time, electors were chosen directly by the people, but most of the states, and remember the states determine how this is done, had each district choose their electors. This was actually the favored and expected method that the framers intended. In 1823, still active in his retirement, James Madison, discussing the matter of how electors are to be chosen with his son-in-law, wrote a proposed amendment to correct the faulty part of the Constitution, as he called it. He begins by plainly stating that the electors to be chosen by districts. But this was not to be. The original intention of the framers was all but lost, as we have seen, by the election of 1880. Now, with this, another of the framers' intentions would also become perverted. It happened slowly at the very beginning, and then, as with the selection of electors, it gradually became the way business was done. It stemmed from the growing factionalism of the emerging political parties. I'm referring to the winner-take-all method. This evolution began with the very first election, and in concert with the direct election method, by 1836, all electoral votes were granted to the winner of the popular vote in every state, except one, South Carolina. Until 1972, this was the way things were done, and then Maine decided to move back to the district system. And in 2016, they split their electoral votes, something they hadn't done since 1828. And then, in 1992, Nebraska follows suit by also going to the district model, which would then allow them to split their electoral votes in 2008. Now, the perversion here is that the electors were supposed to be independent. They were supposed to be selected, and then they alone were to make the decision on who to vote for. It wasn't supposed to be left up to the people. Remember, we are not worthy. <laughs> we get the House of Representatives. The independent electors get the president. It's the check and the balance. But by 1913, the people elected the representatives and the senators. And the way we have just seen the presidential electors evolve, the people's popular vote almost always elect the president. And the movement to change that 
permanently has been gaining traction. Now, there's always been opposition to the electoral system from the very beginning, but it's time to bring this discussion into the present because I'm still trying to figure out what I believe. After the 2000 election, when the popular vote winner lost to the electoral votes, the long national debate was renewed. And there's this idea. It's based on the state's constitutional authority to choose its electors. From this, it's reasoned that a state could choose to give its electors to the winner of the national popular vote. Through some grassroots activism, this little idea has now been introduced as legislation in all 50 states. And it's been made law in 16 states. And those states total 196 electoral votes. That's almost three-fourths of the 270 electoral votes needed to win an election. Now, how about that? If this succeeds, it will bring the second branch of the government in the direct hands of the people. And then we can set our sights on electing the Supreme Court justices and all will be ours. The slow, silent revolution of the people carried out for the last 224 years will be complete. Checks and balances be damned. We want a direct democracy. It's all but in our reach now. In doing the research for this topic, one name came up again and again. James Wilson. By all accounts, he was one of the most brilliant founders and second only to James Madison as far as his influence was felt during the Constitutional Convention. He supported the direct election of the president by the people, and he was the only one who supported the direct election of the senators. Mr. Wilson would be proud. And he was an intelligent man, a learned man. He wanted what we seem to be aspiring to. But what about the other founders? Are they just relics to us now? White men? aristocrats, landowners, slave owners, certainly now is the time to rebuke them in totality. The age of enlightenment is so far removed from us now, I hardly think it matters to us. We live in a different age. We can long for a return to the philosophical debates about the type of country we want to create, where we ensure no tyrant or demagogue will ever rule us, and we hold our liberty above all else. We can try and ensure that the majority doesn't overrule the minority and that each of our branches has an intricate system of balances. But this isn't us. This isn't how we roll. We look at the electoral system and we see it steeped in all its racist antiquity and we see how it perverses the will of the people and we know this cannot be right. We know better. We certainly can't undo what's already been done. We could never return our electors to be independent, to ensure that the best candidate is chosen. We would never stand for them making that decision for us. This liberty and independence that was crafted for us, well, this is the byproduct. We the people are all that matter now, and our will be done. But, and this is my but, because... I notice again that I've just become swept up in my passions. I need to look at this with reason. I get the argument here. Hell, I convinced myself. I actually finished this segment last night with the our will be done bit. And while I was a little stunned that this was my conclusion, that must be my reasoned position, no matter how uneasy it made me. 
Change is often uncomfortable. And here now is the but. What would happen if we did this? Let's imagine, shall we, that we don't just subvert the Constitution and have the states enter into a compact with each other to grant electoral votes based on the national popular vote results. Let's do something the founders did, and which they gave us the ability to do, but we've never done. Let's have a constitutional convention. It's the way in which we can amend the Constitution. The other way, which is how every amendment thus far has been enacted, is to let Congress do it. A convention would be more populous. Instead of giving our elected officials the honor, this would give the voice of the people more of a say. And for once, with no sarcasm, this is our government. We are the people. So imagine then a national constitutional convention. And one of the topics, for there will be many, is Article 2, Section 1, Presidential Electors. Assume that we begin by not totally scrapping the electoral system, but that we look within it at the different methods that we've actually already discussed. Let's use the last two elections as models to test our methods. Now, we all know, for this is why we're really here, that in 2016, the popular vote lost to the electoral vote, all but two states using the winner-take-all method. The first alternative method would be to have the other two states just be winner-take-all. That would result in a shift of one electoral vote with no consequence. Now, next, let's see what would happen if all of the states went to the district plan, where again, the states would split the electoral votes based on the winner in each district. In 2016, this would have changed the distribution of the electoral votes with the actual winner of the election now receiving 16 less, but still well over the needed majority, with a total of 290. But in the 2012 election, this method would have granted the actual loser of the election 68 more electoral votes for a total of 274, which would have changed the result of the election. Now, for those partisan listeners, pay very careful attention to what I just said. If we went to the district method the one in which many believe was intended by the founders, in 2012, the Republican candidate would have won, and in 2016, there would have been no change, with the Republican candidate still winning. Now, finally, let's see what would happen if all of a state's electoral votes were allocated to the winner of that state's popular vote. In 2012, the actual loser of the election would have gained 51 more electoral votes, but at 257, it's not enough to unseat the actual winner. And in 2016, the actual winner would have gotten 39 less electoral votes, bringing their total to 267, with the actual loser now getting 265. Neither would have received the 270 majority required to win. And then what would happen would be something that has happened only three times before, once in 1800, and then again in 1825, and the last time in 1876. The Congress decides who wins the election. This constitutional provision calls for the House to vote for a winner in case no one candidate receives the required majority of the electoral votes. So the House of Representatives would have decided 
the 2016 election. And, again, for our partisan friends, the House being Republican at the time would most certainly have elected their party's candidate. So, my fellow constitutional delegates, what to do? We certainly all have an agenda, for we are a country divided, and we want our agenda to prevail. But if your design was to change the outcome of the last election, you do not see an option, do you? In fact, we just saw that if we returned to the district method, the 2012 election would have also been lost. So then we're left with but one choice, to listen to the candidate we heard from at the very beginning and to follow the path laid out for us by the direct election compact sweeping over the states, elect by the winner of the national popular vote. Yes, this would have changed the 2000 and 2016 elections. And isn't that the point? Isn't that what we've been hedging around for the will of the people to be done? But be careful for what you wish for. I left a breadcrumb in the beginning where I commented on that candidate's quote for a direct national election. Remember, I said that this would completely alter the country. If we the people voted as a nation, it would take power away from the states. That was the intention of the electors in the first place. That was part of the many intentions of the founders to make sure we are a federal republic, a republic, not a democracy, where our governors are the second most important leaders in the country. Not the senators, but the state's governors. Look at what we've been experiencing thus far in 2020. We have seen the power of the states. We have heard the voices of the governors loud and clear. And many have stood in opposition to the executive branch, asserting the powers that the states have by design, reminding the federal government that states decide certain matters and that, no, you can't actually do this. We, the states, do this. Look, our system isn't perfect. I don't think perfection is even possible here. Our flawed founders, despite all their shortcomings, were intelligent men, and they gave us something that has endured. They gave us the ability to work within the system to change it. Do we simply subvert the system by finding a loophole to fix what already happened? Who's to say this wouldn't produce the opposite effect for those who support such a change in the future? To create a new system in reaction to past events with no guarantee for future outcomes is too risky. The cost for me is simply too high. I'm not willing to give up the power the states have just so we can have a direct democracy. It moves the needle too far away from the people. And that's exactly what the supporters are actually trying to avoid. This is corny, but I keep thinking about this quote from Benjamin Franklin, who gave us one of his little witticisms on this matter. Democracy is two wolves and a lamb voting on what to have for lunch. Then again, Franklin also gave us tofu. This has been Mike Gerard. 